Good evening and welcome to The Pipeline. I'm Corey Morgan. This is the Western Standards Weekly News and Affairs Panel Show, where we'll pick a few of the top stories and dissect them, analyze them, give our viewpoints on them. So today I am joined uh, by, I'll start in the end there with our news editor, Dave Naylor. Thanks for joining us for The Pipeline this week, Dave. You know, I'm starting to notice a pattern here, Corey. You and Nigel and I working, nice hot summer day. Where's Derek? Where's Derek? I'm always filling in for Derek in the summer. I'm certain it was something terribly important. Oh, very important, I'm sure. And as well, uh, loyally showing up on such a beautiful day, our opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. Thanks for making it into the studio today. I've timed my vacation so that I don't miss a pipeline. Oh, well, and our viewers appreciate that. Sure, they're all wondering when the heck that Morgan guy is going to give him a break for a little while. <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen. I tend to escape in winter time. So we got a, a full raft of stuff to cover today. Before we get into all those <clears throat> subjects and all that chatter, I'll start with uh, reminding everybody, though, that uh, we aren't taking the tax bailouts. We aren't putting the screws to the social media companies through C18. But you've got to subscribe to us to keep us going, guys. That's the way we pay the bills. That's how we stay independent. WesternStandard.news slash membership, $9.99 a month, guys. Less than newspaper delivery used to be all sorts of direct access, stories, opinion, great content. But also, we're going to be harder to find. The social media outlets are starting to block access to the news. So make sure to favorite us in your browser, on your phone. Sign up for the email lists. Make sure you can keep getting to the Western Standard and spread the word because we need to get out to other viewers, readers, listeners. And uh, if we can't do it through the social media platforms, we need to do it through you. So take a little part, share it with your friends, put it on your own pages and help us keep that news going and out to you. All right. We're going to start with a big one. And it's been just rocking the website the last little while. Unsurprisingly, uh, the Court of King's Bench still sounds strange saying that. Mm. It's going to take a while to get used to that. Has... Uh, rejected Hinshaw's public health orders. Dave, what, what happened? Well, you're right, Corey. This is a blockbuster, and it's going to cause legal uh, waves for, for months, if not years. Uh, Court of Queen's... There you go. Court of King's Bench uh, Justice threw out of all of uh, uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw's COVID orders, uh, basically saying uh, that, that it was the cabinet that decided it. Should have come directly from her, but no, it... Uh, uh, it was it was basically Jason Kenney and, and his cabinet that, that that came up with them. So she's uh, the the justice has thrown them all out. They're now moot. Uh, you know, just some of the backlashes. Uh, I mean, you remember they were throwing pastors in jail. Uh, James Coates, uh, uh, the Pulowski family. Uh, you know, they were there. It was crazy. The 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 people that they were uh, they were locking up. All those charges are now irrelevant. And obviously, the the, uh, the crown's going to have to uh, uh, consider their next step. Uh, things like the, uh, the the no more lockdown rodeo with our good friend Ty Northcott. Uh, you know, he's still before the courts, and his wife with a whole raft of charges. Uh, they're all moot now. So, uh, Western Standard spoke to the justice minister today, uh, Mickey Amory. He says they're going to take it. It's a complex uh, ruling, and they've got 30 days to decide whether or not they're going to. Uh, appeal and i'm sure they're going to use all 30 days uh, Corey. well yeah nigel i mean just to, to dive into the political end of this problem and it's now become a problem that's landed on the smith's government's lap because premier smith has really built a lot of her base though and in, in you know uh, supporting the people who were upset with the lockdowns and, and and such they're going to be very happy with this ruling 
but the government could find itself very, very vulnerable to a lot of legal actions and distress if this ruling stands. So, I mean, she's between a rock and a hard place. If she appeals this, her base is going to go bananas. But if she doesn't appeal this, this could cost untold amounts of time and money. Well, it certainly could. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, I think this is one she'd be glad to lose, you know. And uh, it's uh, there is an obligation upon the government always to challenge rulings that seem to go against it. Uh, possibly she could get some advice that says you actually don't have a case, madam. Do, your, do yourself and the taxpayers a favor and don't invest a lot of money in fighting it. But, you know, the thing that really strikes me about this one is uh, I'm very, obviously, I'm very glad for the pastors involved, you know, for uh, James Coates, for Tim Stevens, for, you mentioned the Pulaski family, Ty Northcote, I'm glad for them. Looks like they're off the hook. But from the larger point of view of what have they just done to us in COVID? This is a win on a technicality. It is not the win that I would like to have seen, which would have been one based on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, namely that what was done was unconstitutional. I mean, that's what I believe. I think there's a lot of people who believe that with me. Um, I'm not sure that's what the courts believe, but in this particular case, what they struck down was if those were not, if she if she distanced herself in her testimony from her own rulings, well, I'd, that were, those are my recommendations. And it was the cabinet that did it. Well, all right, I guess they're not really proper public health orders, are they? And case dismissed. That's great for those who benefit from it. And, you're, and it'll be great for anybody who sues and wins a lottery. But as a, somebody wanting to see liberty, freedom, established, confirmed, this is not the way I wanted to see it. I wanted them to rule on the Charter of Rights and say that they did not actually have the right to do what they did. We don't have that. Oh, so they, they didn't say the restrictions were wrong. They're just saying that the way the restrictions were done exactly. was wrong. And that presumably was in order to say, we could still do it again down the road, but now don't do it this way. Make sure that you communicate it that way. But I mean, it, it, it's still open to hornet's nest. I imagine some other provinces have to be watching this uh, ruling uh, as well. I mean, they, how did they do that? Well, there will be a certain amount of thumbing back through the, uh, you know, <laughs> well, just a second. Did we sign this or did they sign it? Yeah. yeah. Well, right now it's lawyers whose eyes are lighting oh, up. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine the amount or the number of people that could sue the sue the province, uh, everybody who's lost their job due to vaccine mandates, you know, police, from police officers to firefighters to teachers, uh, nurses. It's endless. I mean, it, it, it talk about, you know, billions and billions of dollars with the class action suits. So, I mean, you know, Nigel's right. Uh, uh, it's, uh, that's, is the government going to fight it just to try and prevent that loss to the Treasury? Because... No, I mean, the lawyers are signing up clients as we speak. And there's a lot of damages that are difficult <clears throat> to measure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what about once-in-a-lifetime uh, incidents, graduations, weddings, uh, funerals. funerals? You can't have a redo on those sorts of things, but where do you put a price tag on something like that? 
I, people will have a very valid case to bring before the government and say, well, you, you can't turn the clock back, but darn it, I want some compensation for the distress you put us through. And, and politically, uh, fallout for Premier Smith is the, the, a lot of the cabinet ministers in Kenny's government who signed off on these things are now in her government. What does she do with them? Sticky thing. I, I guess the only consolation she could take is the agonizingly slow uh, pace of our court system. I mean, it's going to be years as this continues to drag out, but the precedent it's set right now. Well, I guess we'll know in a month, though, if they're going to appeal. That's something they can't drag their feet on. You know, what she can say is, look, I knew this was wrong when they were doing it. I said it was wrong. And now my predecessors have left me this time bomb. As Premier of the province, I have no alternative but to do what's constitutionally expected of me, which is to appeal this, and we will. But I do so with no enthusiasm and with uh, a certain amount of smug superiority. I called this thing right in the first place. We'll do what we have to do, but um, if we lose, well, that's... Certainly tell you've written some political speeches before. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it is true, and just hedging the bets. And, and I mean, she, she is taking on multiple roles from her mm -hmm. past critique, but now she's, she's got a broader responsibility as the premier for the whole province. And, no. and like if, she doesn't, if she does not appeal, she's making a political statement. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a statement a lot of people would, uh, would agree with, but would also she would expose her to the charge that she was not doing her constitutional duty. And I would put it in the hands of somebody else and talk about something more pleasant. Yeah, well, and as Dave said, the lawyers are rubbing their hands together on every level oh, of this, yes. uh, particularly the class action ones, but even government ones. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of security coming when you know that there's going to be, uh, it'd probably be a good time to hire more courts well, and yeah, <laughs> judges right now. What do you do with a, uh, somebody who's uh, been a policeman for 20 years won't take the vaccine that was ordered by, apparently by Dina Hinshaw, but in, a, in fact not. But, you know, it's a pretty substantial claim for, for loss, of, loss of income, loss of reputation. Because let's face it, if you were a holdout on vaccination, people just didn't say, well, to each their own. They actually condemned you. You were an enemy yeah. of the people. Vilified on social media. Yeah. Yeah, and proving damages. And I know snatcher of pennies from the eyes of the dead. You know, there was <laughs> no thing that was too vile for them to say about you if you had a principal objection to taking the vaccine on the orders of the government. Well, and the vaccine passports were the big controversial thing, not just from the people coerced into vaccination, but as a former restaurant owner, I think I wouldn't have wanted that in the front of my restaurant, having my hostesses barraged with. Uh, the complaints and the customers being upset. And there's no mm -hmm. doubt that it had a negative impact on my revenue as a business owner. So yes, lawyers, I'm sure looking for more areas for your class actions, <laughs> reach out to Sign the retail up and restaurant areas. Yes. Well, the restaurants that right. claim lost revenue because of the, the vaccine passport. I, I mean, even if you supported it, when you no longer can, you know, with the 10 or 20% of people or whatever who weren't vaccinated, that's lost customer base. You know, since you, since you raised the matter, Corey, of restaurants, this is one of the things that is going to make this case a very difficult one to resolve, is that regulations varied among the provinces. So, restaurants, you say. In British Columbia, because of this virus, 
They shut the churches but closed the restaurant. Uh, sorry, kept the restaurants open. In Alberta, they did the exact opposite. You know? Yeah. So it's not a consistency. You though. are so whoever is fighting this case is saying, well, why did you do what you did? They did it differently somewhere else. In Quebec, we had curfews. In Alberta, you didn't. Uh, what is the on what basis were these decisions made? Nobody's going to come out of this looking good. No, the, the COVID's not behind us. And I'm not talking about the people saying we should still mask up and everything. Just the, the fallout from the actions are going to go on for years yeah. and years to come. Well, you know, with, with the masks, Corey, I, I think we've got to take a very live and let live sort of uh, attitude about it. I, I was out about, about and I saw people in the open air in a big parking lot going to a, going to a shopping mall, got the mask on. You know, I don't know what their circumstances are. Maybe they're as long as it's not mandated. You as long as wear it's not whatever mandated, you want. You know, it's it's um, to each their own. But that was never conceded to people who were anti-mask or anti-vaccine while this thing was going on. And there's a lot of ill feelings that need the judges will need to consider when they're handing out the judgments. Uh, the hornet's nest has been poked. I guess oh, we'll yes. keep watching and covering as it unfolds. All right. Well, before we get to the next subject, I'll speak of uh, another group that uh, does stand up for your rights, actually, and takes legal challenges, non-COVID related. And that's the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. They've been a, a fantastic sponsor for the standard. They're a fantastic group for anybody who owns firearms, whether you collect them, you're a hunter, you're a target shooter. It doesn't really matter. You don't have to justify why you own them. But you have people saying that you shouldn't. You have a government that's trying to take them away. The CSSA has been fighting on your behalf make sure you can maintain that right to that property and enjoying that property however you please within reason. So again, if you aren't a member of the CSSA yet and you have firearms or you just want to support other people with firearms, get on there, guys. It's worth it. It's an investment in your own rights. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Their website is cssa-cila.org. There's all kinds of resources there too. It's not just legal stuff. If you're a firearms owner, all sorts of things there for you. So check it out. Take out a membership. You'll uh, not be sorry for it. Okay, next, Christia Freeland. Oh, he's a, <laughs> a fun subject. One of our our more senior politicians. Uh, boy, she she seems to have gotten herself into quite a mess over her transportation, Dave. She she absolutely has. Uh, she was at a press conference down in the Maritimes, and a local reporter asked her about the carbon tax and how much that's shot up the the amount of gasoline and how it's affecting people down there and what was her reaction and how should people deal with it? And she got on her high horse and said, well, you know, I live in Toronto. I live 150 feet from the subway. I don't drive a car. And if you're worried about fuel taxes, come move to Toronto and buy a million dollar house and live next to the subway and don't buy a car. And uh, she went on about how she cycles to work and cycles to meetings and, uh, uh, but ironically, Corey, the next day, chauffeur receipts started to appear uh, from her limo rides in said Toronto. And it wasn't just one or two. It was uh, the, the chauffeur was billed for, for, for numerous days, uh, most of the days in the month, actually, I think. And it just it showed the utter lack of, you know, <laughs> I don't know what the word is. Nigel, help me out here. Well, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of looking uh, down your nose and in your yeah. your weird Christian Freeland voice saying, well, I don't have a car. Uh, you know, 
I live like 300 uh, Yeah, a little like, you know, yeah, you know, like, like she's talking yeah, like a valley senior, girl. Senior finance minister, uh, politician, using the word like, like a teenager. It's, and I don't think anybody's begrudging uh, Christian Freeland. She's a deputy prime minister and the finance minister of a, a G7 country. She probably has every right to, to a limousine wherever she wants to go. But don't be condescending to people and say, I don't drive a car, I, you know, I take the subway, I ride my bike. I mean, come on. And Canadians saw through it immediately. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you're, you're exactly right, Dave. I mean, you cannot have a finance minister with her briefcase full of uh, secret documents going on the bus or on the subway. Even in a cab, I have my, I have my, uh, I have my doubts, although she says she takes a cab to the airport. That, there is a lot of mean-spirited comment by people. We had a similar outburst over the Governor-General. You know, I don't like it, but I recognize that the Governor-General often doesn't have a lot of choices in where she stays or who supplies the limousine or what it costs. I recognize that in the same way. The Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Christia Freeland, is not only merits an official car when she needs one, but actually should take one for all kinds of reasons, not limited to security. But don't try to tell us that she is doing some noble thing and that she doesn't even own a car. If you can call up the pool and say, send me an Escalade, you don't need a car, do you? <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, it, even Mary Simon didn't at least, you know, say that she takes the bus or the test cab. I mean, part of the problem, too, is it sounds like she was feeding SBS or she's just that disconnected. You know, Christia Antoinette, yeah. as Dave sort of said, just, well, just buy a house near a station in an urban area yeah. and you can just, you know, get rid of your Disney Channel and Let you're fine. cake, for heaven's sake. Yeah. yeah. No, no, she's... I actually don't think she is disconnected. I think she's perfectly aware of her situation. Uh, but I also think she's, she can, uh, she thinks she can tell the narrative her way. I mean, this is all about supporting the green agenda. Oh, no, I'm, I'm pure. I ride my bike to work. Well, okay, maybe once or twice a month you do. If you did it once or twice a week, good for you. I think you're taking a chance. If you've got a box of cabinet yeah. documents on the back, on the pillion, but uh, never mind. Uh, and there, there is history of cabinet ministers leaving documents behind, right? Yes, there was a, one there was a Max, girlfriend Maxime Bernier, yes. if I remember. <laughs> That's right. And British politicians affairs. are always getting caught, you know, losing stuff on, on mm -hmm. the tube. So you really don't want Canadian politicians no, who see. have to carry top secret documents. It's you just don't the want them on the subway. It's just the lies and this is honesty of it all. Oh, it is. Absolutely. You see it everywhere. And here's another one, you know. Well, that's the politics as we know. I mean, people keep bringing up the old orange juice thing. It's not really necessarily the cost, but how it's resonating with people. And, and something the liberals don't seem to quite have grasped yet, I think, with the, the recent polling we talked about last week. They're dropping quite heavily, and they're losing among women and young people. Who uh, That poll also identified by far the biggest concern for everybody in Canada, like the number one listed, is the cost of living, the environment is way down at like sixth place at about 30%. We're talking 70-some percent of people look at the cost of living. So 
these people aren't comforted when they hear her say, oh, well, I ride my bike to save the environment. They're worried about paying the rent. They're worried about affording a car. These people have been in power for 10 years. It's not as though they're a new government just learning, right? Uh, Christia Freeland's been deputy prime minister and finance minister for ages now. She's not a rookie politician, no, so she's not. we can't say she should know better. Uh, so it's just, it was just dumb. But people it was, have it was. It was dumb. Even less appetite for that sort of behavior. You know, when the economy is really good and everything's booming, people might be able to overlook a little more excesses going on. And but you know, you've got to watch your timing. And right now is not a time when people are willing to accept a lot of these things. Right now, this is ever so slightly off topic, but it is. Very interesting to look back at the cabinet shuffle, which she survived intact, and realize that the problem as the prime minister sees it, think about what he said. He said, people who can better articulate our vision going forward. He doesn't say, no, actually, some of our policies have really not worked out the way we intended. We need a new team to do, do things differently and hopefully do it better. He didn't say that. As far as he's concerned, policies are great as well how they're messaged. So this is the team that is going to communicate our government strategies and policies as, as we run up to the next election. Oh, so it's not the policies, it's just the messaging. And this, I think, is when, to bring it back to Christia Freeland, this is precisely the problem. It is one of messaging. Yeah, it wasn't a good messaging out of this. And again, she is a veteran uh, politician, cabinet minister, and she is one of the brighter ones, I would can concede in, in Trudeau's cabinet, actually. She typically not one to stick her foot in her mouth, you know, too, too much. But this one didn't do herself any favors this week. No. Yeah, All right, something a little more of a darker and serious note. Uh, a trucking company. Uh, yeah, it was ordered to reinstate a drunk driver. You know, we've, we've had uh, some of the worst tragedies from trucking, truckers, and, and, you know, I mean, they're large units. They're, they're moving fast. A lot of people can be harmed. The last place you'd want to see a drunk, but apparently uh, you have the right to be a drunken, alcoholic truck driver. According to a Quebec uh, tribunal, you do. Uh, this was a, a, a woman driving a semi. Admitted she'd had nine beers uh, before she got into an accident. Uh, but the, the adjudicator said, well, the company didn't. Uh, taking the fact, taking the consideration the fact that she was an alcoholic, and she should have got help for that, and it was up to the company to find her, uh, basically a desk job, you know, and uh, uh, she was ordered to be to be reinstated. Uh, this goes back to what you talked about today on your show, Corey, about personal responsibility and and dealing with dealing with crime, and how little there seems to be, and how and it seems to be our our legal system is now. Agreeing with it and, le and letting this drunk truck driving, uh, drunk truck driver off, uh, you know, ordering her to get her job back. Hey, Nigel, you were driving trucks on uh, your Model Ford T on the uh, old Alaska Highway, weren't you? You wouldn't be driving. Uh, Hard to believe, beer. but it's 50 years ago now. 50 years yeah. now. Uh, driving for Short Tompkins, a sailor on the Muskeg Seas. But. Um, you know, obviously alcohol was a problem in those days as well, but it was not tolerated. If it came to light, it was dealt with, and you were off the job. Simple as that. It's just too much of a risk, not merely to the person who's driving drunk, but to everybody else around you. I mean, the work we were on was putting up and uh, taking down drilling rigs. 
that's actually dangerous stuff. One false move. Uh, not to mention the fact that later you've got to haul the thing a couple of hundred miles somewhere else. And in this particular case that we're talking about, she was driving on a highway in Pennsylvania. Imagine what had happened. What imagine the story if she had hit a you know a K car full of uh, you know with a family of seven or something like that, and they're all dead, and she's <coughs> she's hauled poured out of out of the uh, out of the cab. It is absolute insanity to say that that she should not have been fired and that they have to make her a job now it is legal same thing would happen in alberta if we if one of us is uh you know is an alcoholic and we we uh register as such then it's up to the owner of the company and he's going to love this but uh it's up to the owner of the company to help you get treatment and keep you going and so forth and so that's the way the law has developed but it's what it really tells you is just how asinine the law has become and our society has become where nobody is held accountable for what they do sometimes for what they think but never for what they do it's a, it's a dangerous dangerous precedent i mean alcoholism I'm very familiar with it. And it it's, doesn't absolve an individual of responsibility. I, if there's any area where, I mean, it, it, the company would have been irresponsible to keep her on. Exactly. A, a justifiable dismissal. She was not just doing something dangerous. She was doing something outright illegal while on company time. If she'd been robbing banks on company time, they could have fired her. I, I, I just, uh, you know, this, this excuse with it. I mean, it's certainly something that I'm sympathetic. It's difficult to deal with. A person needs treatment. A person needs uh, a lot of, hopefully, family support to get through alcoholism. But that's not the company's problem. And it shouldn't be. Um, and you've been open, right? It, yes. It's personal responsibility, right? You took responsibility when you talked about it, when when you were decided you were an alcoholic, you took responsibility and you stopped and you haven't drank since. Or I accepted I was an alcoholic. It took a number of false starts and it takes some time. And, and uh, uh, thankfully I hadn't done something as foolish as, uh, you know, drinking in the field and put somebody at risk and hurt themselves. I was just getting myself wasted at night, but it, it still wasn't good. I wasn't performing a hundred percent actually during the day. A hangover is still actually quite, uh, you're not uh, performing well. But I, I, I get frustrated with these sorts of things where it, it basically, again, is just putting it on the lap of the employer. I mean, put it on her to dry out, prove yourself dry, reapply to that company or find another one. I mean, I don't believe she'd have a life sentence because uh, she was irresponsible. But to force the employer to take on somebody who, who's done that is, is just not. You know, the ironies of it are that uh, if, if things had gone differently and she had killed somebody... This is a good case for Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the other advocacy organizations to say, we need to crack down on it. Well, all right, let's say I agree with you. You need to uh, crack down on it. This is cracking down. Give her a job back. No, so hey, we'll, we'll keep you in the office so you can still keep drinking, but you won't kill anybody while you're at it. Uh, you know, until she, she defecates her own liver out and drops. I mean, this is a, <laughs> you know, this is a person who should be encouraged into 
dealing with the problem, not facilitate it, but it gets back to that enablement attitude we've got with, with addicts in general. I mean, it's an alcohol's an addiction and uh, guys, you, know, you got to stop it when you're addicted. There's no halfway. No. And what the tribunal's decision did was just to enable her to continue, continue doing what she did. Well, that, you know, I don't know what it's going to take to turn around or if it will, as, as Nigel said, that's the way the laws are. It frustrated me as a bar owner. I mean, you get that drilled into you as well. If a person is overserved, I'm on the hook as a bar owner. My staff might be on the hook as a bar owner if they go out and hurt themselves. Now, if I'd seen them, they don't allow any room for judgment, though. If I'd have seen them stumbling with their face against the table and I allowed them three more shots of tequila, yes, I'm being irresponsible. If they got six shots of tequila before they even came to my bar, I have no idea. And yeah. we've seen court cases where that's happened. People traveled, go bar hopping, and ended up suing every bar they'd went to because yeah. they went and got into a drunken accident and hurt themselves. Do we need a justice reform to stop this? Like, how do we take this? This is how do you teach personal responsibility? You know, that's the question. You know, yeah. hey, maybe there's something wrong with me because I went to four bars and three shots of tequila in each one and then drove and killed somebody. Where does where do I learn that personal responsibility? Is it a parental role? School role? Well, you, I, I, I actually, since you mentioned school, I do think that's where you start, that and in the home, teaching responsibility, but there is so little support for it in the, in, in the system that we work in, the legal system, the work system. Uh, every excuse is given, and then when something dreadful happens, they just say, oh, well, that shouldn't be allowed. Well, right, it shouldn't. Maybe, maybe we start earlier. Well, and they're cracking down on the responsible. That, that, that it frustrates me. It's bad enough. See, if somebody, you know, that, that case, I wish I had thought of this in advance, I'd have pulled it up because it, there was a bad one. A woman had gone place, 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 and sued them all. And, uh, you know, just the double punishment of the, the bar did nothing wrong. Right. Yeah. Uh, there was another case in Ontario I saw with an idiot who got drunk. He was drinking with coworkers after bar closing. And they went to a park, drank some more. They went to another bar somewhere, drank some more. And then he tried diving into uh, some water, and it turned out it was only a foot or two deep and had a concrete bottom. You might remember he broke his yeah, neck. I remember he was that, a paraplegic. Yeah. He sued his coworkers. He sued every bar he'd been to. He'd sued the city for not putting signs out to warn him that the water was shallow. Now, having an irresponsible fool suing everybody around him, that doesn't shock me. What shocks me is the judge let him win every single bit of it. He bankrupted his coworkers. He shut down the bars, and he hit the city for a bunch of money. Like, hey, this is ludicrous and this was some years ago yeah yeah look i, I think we've all I, i'm pretty sure we've all got every sympathy for somebody who finds themselves addicted mm -hmm. i don't think anybody sets out with the idea that i am going to make myself into an addict so that i can do whatever i like and not be held accountable so whatever it was that drove this woman to drink so be it but you know, it wasn't even a bar involved. She loaded up with two six packs before she stuffed it in gear and headed off down the highway. Um, that's a pretty intentional act. And it wasn't until uh, a week after the accident that she fessed up and said, well, yeah, I guess probably I am. A, this is what the story says anyway, that maybe, I, maybe I'm an alcoholic after all. <sighs> well, loading up a 12, 12 beer, Heading out down the highway with it, drink nine of them before you hit something. Yeah. 
there's there were clues there. Yeah, and you can't pretend that there weren't already policies, or I didn't know the company didn't make it clear to me that I'm not supposed to drink and drive. I mean, nobody with a driver's license in Canada is unaware that you are not to be driving whilst drunk. Right. No. So admit you're al an alcoholic, uh, get the treatment you need, and as you said, go apply again, right? Something else that might be frustrating, maybe she's not an alcoholic and she just went on a one-time bender, but she used that as an excuse because it gained more sympathy when it comes to trying to get your job. But it's just, uh, again, we're indulging the irresponsible. Where will it end? All right, well, let's turn the page a little and get on to some federal, provincial fighting, always a favorite subject of mine anyways. And it's, it's really been uh, ripping things up quite a bit. It, it looks like uh, with the big housing initiative, we, we're having housing affordability problems. The federal government is putting out big transfers and big uh, programs to try and keep everybody housed affordably. But uh, Alberta got a little shortchanged. Alberta screwed by the feds? Oh, who yeah, would have sure. thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Uh, this time it's uh, with housing. Uh, uh, it's cost, uh, cost problems and tens of millions of dollars in, in transfer payments. And uh, Minister Nixon pointed it out uh, today at a a press conference in Calgary on uh, Tuesday. Uh, I think what did you say, Corey? Tw Calgary's got or Alberta's got 12% of the country's population and only got 2% of the grants. Uh, short changing them, it was more than 100 million dollars uh, to build affordable housing. And there's, you know, affordable housing is an absolutely crucial issue at, at the moment. Uh, and Alberta's getting screwed by the feds once again. Um, I know your eyes lit up because you could probably sell some more books, but it's uh, it's you know how how often does it have how often does it have to happen? You know it's a it's a repeated pattern and, uh, and it's happening again with housing this time. Well, I mean, you can see that the government it's a it's a handy tool to buy political favor in regions where they gain more benefit from support than others. And you know, to be honest. They've got little to gain or lose in Alberta, so they, I don't think they really care if they uh, shortchanges. I would say no. I, you know, one of the irritating things in the last week has been watching Mr. Trudeau say, well, housing, that's not really a, a federal responsibility. Strictly speaking, looking at it from a college politics 101 student uh, textbook uh, example yeah well it, it isn't a federal responsibility but what he chooses to ignore and of which he's perfectly well aware is that it is the policies the financial policies that the federal government has followed that has put us in this situation if you borrow hundreds of millions of dollars and increase the national debt cause inflation drive up interest rates, that's what? You have just made it more difficult for people to buy houses. So it's a knock-on effect uh, of what they have already been doing. If you also, at the same time, hugely inflate the supply by ramping up the number of immigrants, well, let me say, for those who are watching our words to see whether we're saying something, not anti-immigrant, I am an immigrant. However, if you ramp up the demand on a limited supply, you will drive up prices. And if you do the drive, that, drive up those prices with your increased immigration and with your stupid financial policies, then all of a sudden, if somebody can't buy a house in Toronto, 
can't find a house that they can afford in Vancouver, can't find they, something that they could at least get started with in Calgary, yeah, it's a federal problem. And it's yours, sir. And just look at the streets of Toronto today. Uh, refugees coming to this country for a better life, being forced to, to live on the street uh, in, in tent cities because they have nowhere to go. They can't afford, there's no, there's no affordable housing for them because right. it's not being built. Uh, and that is in the lap of the, the you know, the, the feds. And, and, and you're 100% right. And it's only going to get worse, right? Because you've got this, this half a million refugees coming and immigrant, immigrant too, right? So mm -hmm. where are you going to put them? Where did this guy come from? Uh, I sprouted out of the ground out here uh, in Alberta. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, I didn't come yeah. from very far. But where are you yeah. going to put them all, right? Where are they going to live? You realize you're a minority. <laughs> I can live with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. White men are a majority, minority now. Yeah. But uh, oh, I, it's, yeah, it's just logistics. It's not pro or anti-immigration when it gets to this point. You, you bring people in, they need a home. This is a winter country. This could become a very big crisis very soon. But not only is the cause, as you pointed out, you know, there's some responsibility because bad federal policy has raised our cost of living, but he's assumed responsibility when, I mean, how can you say in one hand, okay, it's not my responsibility for this, but I'm going to create a program with hundreds of millions of tax uh -huh. dollars and disperse it. Well, now you've assumed some responsibility then, and that responsibility should have been dispersing it based on population or even Where's the areas with bigger growth where we got the bigger problems? And guess what? Alberta, if anything, should possibly even have more than what our population represents rather than less. So, yeah, that, that dog saying he's not responsible. Sorry, you jumped into it, Mr. Uh, Prime Minister. Well, I guess he had other things on his mind. But it's, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, I kind of read that first, Corey, and... It almost went over the top of me because I thought, well, what else would you expect? But you're right. And Nixon is right. This is actually wrong. This is exactly how you deepen the divisions within a country. And when you're elected, you govern for the entire country. I remember when Harper got elected in 2006. That was the theme of his, his election night acceptance speech, uh, when he just told everybody, look, this is not a matter of the Conservatives winning. We are here to govern for everybody, whether they are Liberal, Conservative, or NDP. Remember that very clearly. And then, you fast forward to 2023, is not this federal government here to govern on behalf of all Canadians, in which case, if you think that putting money into housing is a good idea, then you prorate it evenly around the country. Well, and, and as you pointed out, you know, to people like me who have been long advocating uh, increased Western independence, if not full-out independence, and even flogging books uh, to say as much, this makes my case easier. This makes it easier for me to bang that drum. This isn't equalization even. You know, people always focus on equalization and they forget. There's a lot of other areas where we get shorted, actually, in the West, and particularly in Alberta. This is They love using the transfer program as a way to uh, preferentially fund some parts of the country and not others. It's just that equalization is the most blatant of it. But when we see these sorts of things exposed, hopefully some people start asking, well, what about some of those other transfers? Are we getting the same shape with the health transfers or the road infrastructure transfers? Just uh, more and more ammunition for Premier Smith and uh, the eventual use of the Sovereignty Act, I guess, on something.
Well, creating some odd alliances. I mean, did you really think you'd see Jason Nixon and uh, Mayor Sohi and uh, Mayor Gondek all hand in hand in the, on the same cause at any point short of a, a large natural disaster? Uh, they've uh, unified uh, some pretty disparate uh, political personalities. Politics made uh, strange bedfellows, that's for sure. One thing's for sure, Corey, anybody who has a house, has a home that they can afford, need to be grateful. It is a, uh, you always used to think all these years that buying a house was just what you did. Yep. And all of a sudden, it's starting to look like, a, thanks to this government, this federal government, starting to look like a privilege. That is wrong. It is. So speaking of uh, distractions, uh, you know, uh, I will kind of round it out. I mean, we sort of alluded to it. We don't want to get too deep into it, but I think it's worth uh, addressing. We should talk about it. It's, it's, a, it's an issue that's going to dominate some news and it's going to distract from, from other things. But it was announced just recently that the prime minister and his wife will now be separating. And, uh, you know, something I, I said on my show and I, I said on, on social media, too, as much as I'm a harsh, nasty guy on social media and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's still a family. They're still human. We can forget it at times. It's, it's tough, and particularly on their kids. That, that I really feel for, you know? I mean, when, you, when you're going through a family breakup like that, it, it's hard on a person uh, as, as a kid even. But, you know, when my parents went through it, it was something. But at least it wasn't broadcast throughout the TV and the newspapers, and there was some such thing as social media. Uh, I guess, you know, just a lot of people happy to dance on Justin Trudeau's uh, the grave of his relationship. But at the same time, people should temper it with a little... Yeah, absolutely. As you say, this is a family. There, uh, you know, a lot of people have been through it. I certainly have, and it leaves the emotional scars. And uh, kids can be cruel, Corey. Let's not forget, kids can be cruel. And uh, uh, when the Trudeau kids go back to school in September, they're going to face uh, a ton of trouble. So, yeah, remember the well, kids. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and in the general confession, uh, I'm I too, I'm a divorced man. There's very little that I can say. Um, that I would, you know, I can't condemn the man. There are, it is one of the disappointing things that looking at some of the comments on the, you know, that we get, um, a lot of people, uh, how do I put it without offending our readership? Sometimes, you know, what, what happens in a person's family really nobody anybody anybody else's business there's nothing here to take pleasure from we will criticize mr trudeau for his policies and we will criticize him for the many hypocrisies that he has demonstrated in his public life and the private life that came before it but on the matter of his marriage i just wish him and sophie and the kids i wish them well and, and the parallel was sort of drawn, though. I mean, just of, of note, the last time a sitting prime minister actually experienced a divorce while in office was was Pierre Trudeau, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's father, of course, uh, back in '77. But his, I believe it was a, was the walk in the snow that same year. Yes, later that year, '78, uh, I think the divorce yeah. was finalized and. Uh, Walk in the snow was later that year. You can't at the same time. I mean, we could still be dignified and not dig into the reasoning and such, but it, we, we also discuss it does impact the mindset and possibly the, the, the choices uh, of a prime minister. I mean, it, that could have been part of what influenced Pierre Trudeau when, when he made his mind up. And, and Justin Trudeau is having a tough time in government right now with this stacked on top of it. It, it uh, may influence his 
career choices in the next few months. Yeah, they could go either about. way. Could go either way. I think mm-hmm. it could say, okay, now I'm going to focus on this instead of that, and uh, focus on battling Polyev. Or yeah, you're right. He could just do what his dad did and say, uh, that's enough for me, and I'm out of here. It's just a, f- a factor that's happening. Again, we can't ignore that it's happening, but at the same time, we, you know, it's it's speculating on the causes of the personal affairs or such is really not. Uh, I, I just uh, think the effort is a bit restrained about how we yeah. about how we talk about it. But uh, yeah, when you when you have something of that magnitude on your mind, it's got to affect your on the job performance. If that's what you're saying, I would agree with you. Yeah. Or, or even he might, as Dave said, it might improve his performance. He might focus different people react differently in stress, but I just think it might affect some of his decisions, his personal decisions, perhaps, and how long he's going to stay as a prime minister or uh, possibly move along and see about different mm-hmm. choices. But well, we will watch and see. There's lots to watch on policy wise, and we'll spend plenty of time dissecting and critiquing, critiquing his choices when it comes to the, uh, Governing of our country, anyways, the governing of his households up to him. Hundred percent, yes, well put. So, all right, well, Dave, Nigel, thank you very much for helping me through this another episode of the Pipeline. I think I'm four out of five of the last ones, Mister yeah, Gilbert. So, uh, don't worry, winter's uh, coming. He'll come so back to work in September. Taking you on steady. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. And thank you all for tuning in, guys. And I will leave off with nagging you just one more time. Help us stay independent. Help us keep rolling. Help us keep employing this great bunch of people we have here. Subscribe if you haven't already. And make sure all that stuff you hear on social media. But it's true. It works. It helps. Like us, you know, on social media. Share it. Do all those things. And uh, we can uh, make sure we don't fall victim to these efforts through C18 and things like that to crush alternative and independent media like that. So, again, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you all again next week at this time. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley is steady at 414 Feed wheat is down $2 at 410 while corn dropped $3 to 396 in the milling wheat markets, September Minneapolis futures are off five and a half cents at eight forty nine per bushel, with local hardwood spring bid for August movement at ten forty five per bushel delivered. Over to the canola market, nearby canola futures are lower one dollar and seventy cents at seven hundred and seventy seven forty per ton, with delivered values for August movement at seventeen twenty eight per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentils are trading at thirty two cents a pound, and yellow peas are at eleven dollars per bushel. Looking at the cattle markets, August live cattle decreased $1.30 at $178.20 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing and picked up on-farm options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Vera Buziak at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.